You are listening to a Strange and Beautiful Network Classics Collection episode. This episode was originally released under our parent podcast, Strange and Beautiful Book Club. This next set is dedicated to you, Jean-Pierre. The Nightcrawler's waiting for you. Hello, friends. I have terrible news. Horrible news. Horrific news. Shadow of the Vampire isn't available to stream anywhere. Or buy on DVD. Or buy on DVD. From anywhere, except for like $100 on Amazon. Yeah, if you want to buy it used for 100 bucks, And uh, not gonna. <laughs> uh, at least not yet. You know, hey, here. Here's a Patreon goal. Here's a Patreon goal. If we can get 25 subscribers to any level, I will purchase and watch Shadow of the Vampire. I'll even do a riff track because... Willem Dafoe as a possibly super method actor, possibly actual vampire, is uh, it's worth a riff track. Yeah, portraying Nosferatu. Yeah, so there we go, guys. That's our first Patreon goal. It was a very odd moment to discover that it was not available on streaming because... No legal means to get it. Yeah, because 21st Century Rachel was like, I'm sorry, what? It's not available? What do you mean it's not available? I should just be able to get it somewhere. Some streaming service has it. It's just a matter of who. Well, it turns out, no. No. No, it's probably in legal limbo somewhere. Whoever had the rights got bought out and shut down. It's not an old movie. It's 22 years old. Yeah, so somebody probably bought the rights to it and had it on their streaming platform. And and then that streaming platform got bought out and shut down. And Well, anyway, until it comes out of streaming purgatory or we get enough Patreon subscribers. Shadow of the Vampire is off the docket. But I have good news. The best news. Truly the best news. She finally got me to watch Nick Knight with Rick Springfield. (laughs) Yes, it did get Rick Springfield's 1989 classic, Nick Knight, bumped up the schedule. So here we are, having just watched Nick Knight. So this is not Nosferatu, where you guys got three-day-old leftovers that we had been left sitting out on the table, and we finally get a chance to discuss it. Oh, no. This little bit of commentary is served hot and fresh, because we just watched the movie. So I guess we should say hello and welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Podcast. This is the cue theme music part. Okay. (laughs) Pippin, you have anything to say? yellow, dusty atmosphere. In fact, this entire movie is fairly dusty or smoky or Uh, atmospheric. That was just 1989 (laughs) in a city. (laughs) Literally everywhere in 1989, there was just a haze. There's just a haze that nothing was seen clearly from anywhere from 1989. The Clean Air Act hadn't had a full effect yet. 
When did the Pet Cleaner Act pass? Uh, thinking late 70s. Oh, let's ask Google. Clean Air Act. 1963. Oh. They've had some time to get their shit together. It should have been cleaner. Should have been cleaner. But Shame no, on you, This city. entire movie. What is, city is this supposed to take place in anyway? I think it's L.A. Okay. I, I got more of a Midwestern, Midwestern vibe. No, I think it's L.A. I had to pause to confirm, which I'm slightly ashamed of. But yes, it is Los Angeles. I think we're supposed to recognize the well, skyline. Los Angeles makes sense for hazy atmosphere. Yeah, that's that's true. So we have this uh, archaeological dig at the beginning. Back to back to the movie. Very Jurassic Park. Very Jurassic Park. So right off the bat, we have an idea that this isn't going to end well. Um, it's not starting well. It's an archaeological dig. I'm pretty sure every archaeological dig uncovers an ancient evil that was buried for a reason and was supposed to stay buried for all time, uh, which is exactly what they do because a truck pulls up and uh, out hops a long-haired blonde lady, semi-attractive, and she unearths a cup, a jade cup that definitely has fangs. So right off the bat, the bat. Uh, we're getting some vampire referencing here. Uh, and then we cut to the long, long, long title entrance scene, which doesn't even really have music. It just has heavy breathing. We are. Oh yeah. Driving the Cadillac down. Oh no, no. We're flying over the skyline of Los Angeles. This is the. With heavy breathing and flapping sounds. Yes. The ultralight. With a camera, yes, flying yeah. over the city. Uh, clearly, uh, this needed some credit music or something over top of it because it is just what feels like about forty-five minutes of heavy breathing with a flapping noise. It goes on for a really, really long time, but we do eventually get inside of a museum, which is a domed building up on the hill, uh, and the floating mouth breather gets uh, quite a bit of POV time inside the museum where we cut between both the guard walking around... Sneaking around behind the guard. And Mouth Breather sneaking around uh, in behind the guard or whatever, which is actually pretty well filmed. I think you even commented that it's pretty cool that we get kind of a steady cam. Oh, yes. There's, there was this back and forth between the, like, handy cam uh, pursuer stalking this guy and then the security guard of the museum just walking calmly in front of different exhibits and it was all framed really well and lots of color changes. Matt talks with his hands. So there's going to be some microphone smacking. I just, every time you hear that, just imagine he's flapped his hands off sideways. Gesticulating wildly. Gesticulating wildly, even though I'm the only one here looking at him. Uh, so this guard is drinking something. Uh, I want to go with canonically it's tequila but it's probably coffee. He's also eating cookies as he's walking around this museum, uh, guarding. So the mouth breather has finally reached his parent destination because he breaks the glass and reaches out a truly well-manicured hand to snatch the cup that we saw at the beginning, which is in this museum. So the breaking glass gets our coffee-drinking, cookie-eating guard's attention, and he arrives just in time Gun drawn. Gun drawn to shoot at the mouth breather and then get killed. Um, 
And then we cut to, suddenly, Rick Springfield, which I'm sure was a big draw when this originally was filmed. And he is lying in a sunbed, clearly uncomfortable, uh, panting, thrashing, and he does hit the panic button, which causes two young attendants to run in and try to rescue him, but they find him sitting on the edge of the sunbed, uh, playing it off like it's no big deal. Mr. Knight, are you okay? Yeah. Are you sure? Why, I don't look okay? Will you push the panic button? Uh, I got a little claustrophobic. It's like a coffin in there. Oh, mm, sorry. Yeah. NBD. NBD. Just got a little claustrophobic. Totally not because I'm allergic to sunlight and I was in a sunbed. Absolutely not. Actually, at this point, we don't know Rick Springfield is a vampire. Right. Um, I'm not sure what kind of trailers aired in 1989, so I'm not sure how much of a illusion people illusion people had gotten to the fact that this guy is perhaps not human. But this is our first reference to the idea that if he is not a vampire, he is at least odd. And he does make a coffin reference. So one of the attendants also mentions uh, he's pretty easy on the eyes, uh, to which the other one But replied, he's weird. But Comes he's in weird. three times a week and never gets a and tan. And never gets a tan. He's cute. He's weird. Comes in three times a week and never gets a tan. Make her a detective. <laughs> Clearly she's noticed something is up. Uh, so he's driving around in a convertible which is odd for somebody who isn't out during the daytime, but he's driving around a convertible to some very 1989 music. And I remember distinctly loving the soundtrack to this movie the first several times I watched it. In fact, I do believe I burned it on several mixed CDs. So, I mean, it's not horrible. It's pretty jaunty, pretty upbeat as he's driving around, experiencing the city, enjoying his ragtop convertible so he goes to visit a homeless encampment and makes a foreshadowing reference as he's speaking to some of the people that there might be something lurking out there that they need to keep an eye out for and i'm slightly baffled by this homeless encampment um it's in like an amphitheater which is clearly in the middle of a park there's burn barrels there's trash there's Cardboard boxes sort leaned of, against, like, a stage. Yeah, it's sort of a stereotypical somebody's imagination idea of what a homeless encampment might be like. And it's possible. I don't know. I've never been to Los Angeles. I, I can't speak to what Los Angeles was like in 1989 in terms of how they treated people experiencing homelessness. But this just seems a little over the top that they have apparently annexed to this entire amphitheater but maybe somebody knows i don't know correct me happy to be corrected so while he is there chatting with his friends uh he receives a radio call to 81 kilo which is his call sign both in this and spoiler alert the tv show that follows and we find out that oh no someone has been murdered at the museum hashtag it's the guard guys we already saw this one same mo as the homeless people same memo as the homeless people. So he gets to the museum, and somebody is making a comment. Huh. The doors were locked. The alarm was on. The guy had to fly in. Ba-ba-bum. So he knows Skanky is there immediately, because he smells him. Skanky's the 
partner detective. And he introduced, he actually refers to Skanky immediately in this moment as Skanky. So we're supposed to immediately set up sort of Skanky's character in the fact that he is recognizable from his cologne alone. And when we finally do see Skanky, we see that, yes, he has mutton chops to rival mutton chop guy from... Nah. No? Okay, he doesn't have the mutton chops. He has the hairstyle, the like 70s, slightly balding, near mullet, swoop back hairstyle. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so... Facial hair, not so much. Right, we're immediately setting up Skanky as sort of a... A abrasive a character <laughs> kind of an abrasive character a counterpount to oh, is would he be a counterpoint because Nick Knight is they're fairly... both trying to be sexy in an 80s kind of way <laughs> is it is skanky attempting to be sexy is that what that hairstyle is supposed to yeah. be yeah in in a he's trying too ah, hard in a but less, he's not a less successful way than Rick Springfield because they do have a similar hairstyle when it right. comes down to it. Okay, yes, point taken. Skanky is attempting the same attractive. Yeah, like three buttons undone, show, trying to show some chest hair, but. Yeah, blowout, sort really of wavy mullet. I, yeah. I, I got you. Okay. So I do love this shot of everyone hovering over the dead body, or it's almost as if the camera is from the dead body's point of view. And all these people are leaning over it. It is a cool shot. But there's a lot of people in this crime scene. There is just a truly tremendous number of people loitering about this room with absolutely no attempt at maintaining crime scene integrity. I mean, Skanky's rushing people. He's taking the photographer's camera and pretending he's at a photo shoot. This is is not a modern crime scene. This is pre-CSI crime scene where we're just... We're here for the effect. We're not here for the, the realism realism of this crime scene. Hopefully, this isn't a realistic crime scene. Although, with the LAPD, uh, who knows? Who knows? So, Nick, who has spent a little bit of time milling about with all the other milling about people, um, and with a handkerchief over his mouth, uh, which Skanky comments on and says, Can you believe they put somebody like this in homicide? falls apart when he sees a little blood uh, <laughs> he, uh excuse me falls apart when he sees a little hemoglobin hemoglobin yes he's trying to trying to come off as a little right. clever <laughs> clever uh so he spots a beautiful woman sitting over by herself and and being rick springfield as a vampire cannot, cannot resist himself. nope can't help himself he's got to go over there he's got to whip out his historical knowledge and just start his, wagging it around his huge huge historical knowledge historical knowledge huge historical knowledge in fact his opening line is can you believe the first four digits on this stella match my well, alarm th- code? that wasn't the first line that was this doesn't belong over here this is such and such and she's like oh they told you that huh and then he pulls out the Yes, the the, line about the these numbers. digits match my alarm code. That's the one where she says, oh, somebody told you. And he goes, no, I just know this stuff. And so uh, she oh, confronts him about it. I used to be a it. grave robber. Yes, he says, I've done a little amateur grave robbing in my time. And she says, isn't that illegal? To which he replies, only, only for the last 40, 40 years. 
Uh, you got to love a vampire that just relies on everybody not believing them. Just, it, it's the British method. Yeah, just tell the truth and no one will comment. If the truth is outrageous, you just tell the truth and people will assume you're just bullshitting them. Right. And she says, uh, neither one of us have been around that long. And he goes, in this incarnation, yeah. <laughs> uh, she does recognize him. She says, I've seen you from somewhere before. But he kind of redirects her. He's got huge historical knowledge to wag around in front of her face. And he does. Uh, and my other question, the burning question of the night in this scene is, why does everyone have a styrofoam coffee cup? Elise has coffee. Everyone has coffee. In fact, Skanky is one of the only ones who doesn't have coffee. And he makes a comment, where is everyone getting the coffee? Maybe it was a running joke amongst the crew. It's possible, but there was a lot of coffee being slung around. Maybe they all found the pot of coffee that the guard had brewed for himself and helped themselves. Uh, Rick Springfield slash Nick Knight does recognize some of the items from the dig and questions to her about the item that's missing, which as it turns out is the jade cup, which we knew from the beginning because we saw manicured hand mouth breather guy snatch it. Uh, and she says, do you know what that cup was used for? Of course he knows what it was used for. Uh, it was used to drink the sacrifice victim's blood. Bum, bum, bum. And conveniently, the guard was missing blood. And all of the homeless people were missing blood. So obviously. So it ties in. These are all connected. And then, isn't this where we cut to the scene of Nick going home? Uh, no, he goes to see the coroner first. Okay, coroner yes. first. So the coroner is examining the body. Uh, and Nick is there, and he has a cup in his hand. And the coroner is trying to egg him on to drink it. And he says, what is this? It's just a coffee cup. Right, it's just a coffee cup. Uh, and he says, I have Newt, what do you care? Just drink it. So he does try to drink it and clearly can't. Uh, he gets asked about his tan, Jack the coroner, asks him, how's his tan going? And he says he's up to 15 minutes in the sunbed. So we're establishing here that whatever is going on with Nick, the coroner is in on it. Yep. And is obviously helping him in some way. A confidant, an advisor. Yes. A life coach. <laughs> oh, man. That, that was good. Yeah, we just pointed at each other. It was a magical moment. And, oh, look, guys, bad bite mark makeup. It's back. You thought Nosferatu was the end of it, but, oh, no, it's back. Because no one has ever measured the distance between somebody's canines when making bite mark prosthetics. Or observed the angle of the fangs yeah. when a person bites another person. They just neck. slap that shit on They're there. They're vertical. Roll that actor out. Just call it Dunzo. And then they call in the the makeup department and they're like, slap some fang marks on there and they go horizontal. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's impossible to bite that way. <laughs> actually, actually, the, the way those bite marks were, if you had like the head in front of you, like hair on your, towards your chest, looking at their ear, and then the rest of their body by your forehead. And then you bit them like underneath the jaw. 
you could make the fang marks that were on that body. Thank you. I was thinking about this. Wow. That was an elaborate. <laughs> you put a lot of work into I'm, that. I'm an engineer. I got yeah. solve so these You put problems. more work into that than that makeup artist put into that. Absolutely. So the MO is different this time, which the coroner very pointedly points out. The other ones have all been slashed or incised. A clean incision a clean while they incision. were unconscious. Yes. And this one is bite marks. Bite marks. And there's signs that he was awake when it happened. Right. So Nick Knight broods. Uh, clearly, this is a question he may know the answer to, but he's not willing to share it yet. So we cut to the police station. And we find out that Knight not only works alone and at night, but only he at refuses night. to have a partner. Uh, but that's not okay this time. Because when it was just homeless people, apparently... You could have a single detective working on it. But now that a guy with a job got it's killed. It's too high profile. It's too high profile. And we need to have him take And, and the media is blown up about the vampire killings. Right. Who is predictably, almost magically, skanky. Well, howdy. Partner. So then he's driving home after the horrible moment at the station where he realizes that Skanky is going to be his partner and he actually requests that the captain shoots him. Um, and we're, we're listening to another Holds group. out his service revolver. Yes. And says, by the, by the barrel. It says, just shoot me. <laughs> so he's driving home to another jaunty song. It, it's, it's a, it goes off well. Yeah. I, I think. It's good. I mean, it's a moment. The, the chemistry works. Right. It's not like corny. No. No, it works really well. I mean, overall, I, I like this movie. Clearly, I like this movie. But it's okay. You can love a movie and it can have flaws all at the same time. So Nick Knight apparently lives in an old Aztec-themed movie theater. Of course. Because of course he does. Um, it's a pretty cool loft space. He's got pretty big windows. A skylight? Question mark? Uh, and a stack of TVs. Like, Big old cathode ray tube TV boxes. Yes, a whole... Stacked in a pyramid. Stacked in a pyramid. Another, uh, like, Aztec Central American reference. Ooh, good catch. Good catch. Yeah. and He, he... also has uh, similar themed relics, like a pillar. Yes, just like a stone strewn pillar. about the apartment. Um, he closes his mechanical blinds as the sun rises outside and pulls a familiar-looking cup from a basket and pours an ominously thick red liquid into it before... From a wine bottle. ...sticking it in the microwave, which begs the question, <laughs> is ancient Aztec pottery microwave-safe? Uh, if it had a low iron content. Well, it's jade. It has a low iron content. Uh Rocks so. are microwave, as long as there's nothing that's <laughs> going to resonate with the microwave energy. Well, apparently it doesn't because he's able to heat up his or blood it, in the microwave. In there's nothing cup. conductive in it. Uh, and he pulls it out so he can watch the sunrise on his TV stash while drinking blood out of the cup. So this is supposed to be our, oh snap, is Nick Knight the bad guy moment. Because, because this is the he's cup drinking blood. Snatched. Yes. Out of the jade vampire fanged cup. Yes. That mouth breather, whose identity up to this point remains a mystery, 
snatched earlier. So yeah. So is Nick Knight the mouth breather? <laughs> uh, so the night after the man was brutally murdered at the museum, apparently it's business as usual at the museum. Regular security guards are back on duty. Just one. Leaving from work. Elise curator. Hunter, the curator, has still arrived comes to work for the night. Snacks for the night. The guard says, "Are you sure you should be here? Do you feel safe here?" And she's like, "Oh, absolutely. I'll call you if there's a problem." Yeah. Like someone didn't just get murdered. Literally in that room that they were standing Literally in. Literally in the room they were standing in last night. Uh, but she does have snacks, so clearly uh, she feels a, safe. Uh, a number of snacks. As large as Nick Knight's historical knowledge. <laughs> Truly huge. Huge, huge number of snacks. Uh, and I, I love this blouse, loose skirt combo. This is probably my fashion moment. Uh, if I have a fashion moment for this movie. I love the loose blouse, loose skirt with a tight belt combo. And she wears it well. So just had to pause for a moment and appreciate that that fashion choice was a good choice. Uh, she's also reading priceless antique books uh, while munching on Cheetos. And, uh, and eating ice cream by the giant scoop. Yes. Nearly, while hunched over the book. Nearly dumping her vanilla ice cream onto this book. Well, the, the first book with the ice cream didn't look like a priceless old book because it had like photographs in it. It wasn't like It's a, still an old book. I mean, we're, it's still an older book. It's like a record of the previous time that this... Site but like was. 75 years old, maybe 100 years old, not like a 500-year-old But it's not document. like she can go on Amazon and buy it again. It's not like she can go online to eBay and catch a used copy. And regardless, this woman is sitting at her desk with <laughs> lots of paperwork on it. And artifacts. And artifacts. And books. Munchen. Just, I mean, crap snacks. Every <laughs> scene of her in her office, she's, she's shoving eating. food in her she mouth. She is eating. <laughs> uh, so it's night, and uh, Knight is back at it again. Uh, he's walking around shirtless, checks his messages to hear that the sexy curator, who appreciated his large historical knowledge the night before, uh, has left him a message telling him that she'll be there all night in case he wants to stop by it talk about anything also the coroner has left him a message telling him to try and eat some human food uh which he does a large gross looking burger he cooks like a pound of ground beef <laughs> into a single burger patty yeah and then tries to take a bite of it and it looks well cooked i i don't know he doesn't want to eat it i wouldn't want to eat it that's a bad place to start uh <laughs> yeah but just straight Street burger. Yeah. So we cut to the station again. And Skanky is donating blood. Um, and he's trying to engage Foreshadowing. <laughs> Foreshadowing. And he's trying to engage people in conversation. But no one is vibing with poor Skanky. Um, he does use the phrase, bet dollars to donuts. Oh, actually, Fenner uses the phrase. No, who uses the phrase, bet dollars to donuts? The coroner does. Anyway, in the spoiler alert TV show, this becomes a recurring line of Skanky's dollars to donuts. I thought that was interesting. 
Uh, there's a lot of subtext going on in the conversation that they have at the coroner's office. Uh, Skanky and Knight arrive, and they're interviewing the coroner about what he found about the body. And the coroner they're getting is, debriefed. They're being debriefed. And the coroner is trying to tell Nick that he's pretty sure this is a vampire. But Skanky is standing right there. So, interrupting. Interrupting every few minutes. So they Once up, again, th- this is like the... I guess the shortest description of Skanky's character in this movie is he's trying way too hard <laughs> to look successful, successful to be perceived cool. as successful or competent. Yeah. And so they go back out to his car and they are driving around in his old ragtop Cadillac. And Skanky does question the car. And Knight says that he has it because of the truck space that the 1959 Cadillac has the largest trunk space of any car made in the last 30 years. Uh, so then he asks Skanky about his wife, and Skanky mentions that they've been married for seven years. And then Nick has what is possibly one of the creepiest responses ever. Totally this. breaks the chemistry of the moment. Totally breaks the chemistry of the moment. And it's this. Man, that must feel good to wake up with a woman every morning. Yeah, it's just a little weird for him to say it must feel good to wake up next to a woman every morning. Not the same woman, not, but just a woman, a woman that when you wake up, there's a chick next to you. That's got to feel good. Life goals. Life goals, apparently, for Nick Knight. (laughs) So they get called to a hostage situation uh, and they have to pull a Korean U-turn. (laughs) <laughs> I, I was gonna i was gonna use that phrase when we were watching it <laughs> i figured oh, you'd bring it up oh we'll get to korean u-turns but if anybody's familiar familiar with k-dramas you've seen this move uh new information comes to light you can't possibly wait to turn around legally so you just have to hang a hang a yui right where you are uh and head to this hostage situation and nick knight looks jazzed for some action he's got a sparkle in his eye he's ready probably just anxious to get away from skanky and this is a good opportunity to do it because he shouts there's a little bit of unintelligible dialogue here i mean you can tell what they're saying but it's not great dialogue he's like experience says work the exits and so knight just yells then work them and then runs to the next room so skanky's off being the only real cop in this movie who <laughs> which he is for the whole movie the only real cop Skanky is the only one actually working the case. <laughs> Nick the, Knight yes. is working his vampire drama. Yeah, yeah, his vampire uh, He's like, chip on his well, shoulder. Shit, I'm investigating this series of murders that all look like a vampire, and I'm literally the only vampire in town. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's definitely bringing some uh, some baggage yeah. to this. And then here comes another guy that was actually killed by a vampire, and he's just like, oh, shit. Sure. <laughs> How uh, do I deflect this away from, attention away from me? Right, and then he's got a partner to drag around, so yeah. it makes it even worse. Uh, but he is jazzed for this action, nevertheless. And the bad guy has an automatic weapon, which proves to be no problem for our supernatural detective because he rushes in, gets shot like a bunch, falls into the pool before <laughs> zooming up <laughs> into the air. <laughs> Definitely not on wires 
at all. It's not even like a long wire where he has like a nice, long, graceful arc. It's a short wire. It's like he's pivoting from like two feet above his head. (laughs) Just like his feet are swinging back and forth. But you're just focused on his head and torso. And he has his hands up. Once again, you thought we'd left Nosferatu behind, but oh no, monster hands make a comeback, as does the horror vampire face. So he gets and, a total and vamp the face. long finger shadow silhouette stretching along the wall. Have we gotten? I don't think we've gotten and, to but the that, that's yet. later. But yes, yeah, we're coming to that. But yes, we get a vamp face. A la Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where we go from Absolutely. Rick Springfield to Rick Springfield with angry fanged gerbil prosthetics, <laughs> angry fanged gerbil. It's eyebrow, eyebrow, cheek, uh, like brow ridge, cheek, yes, and then teeth, teeth, yes, which they are not the middle incisors, but the right ones next to the it, canines, not the ones between the canine and the incisor, which that's all right, it works. Um, so someone cut to another scene. Someone is stalking our wholesome homeless couple from the first scene, the genie and topper, Topper. which, uh, Nick is talking to in the very first scene and whoever is walking behind them, we hear the faint jingling of keys, which will become pretty pivotal very shortly. Uh, so we find out we cut back to the police station and we find out that the perp has been identified the perp identified the perpetrator with the automatic weapon identified the person who picked him up at the pool as a monster which they all dismiss offhand because this guy is obviously on some substances uh but it doesn't change the fact that night is missing so we get a rehash of the mouth breather scene as uh, you apparently cannot fly and breathe through your nose at the same time. Oh, yeah. The mouth breather flying over the city flies to the museum, lands in the building, and then stalks their way into Elise's office. Yes. And we get another reference to somebody being completely drained of blood. The bodies of the Indian workers could be found the next morning, completely drained of blood. It's a phrase we can move past. Like, can we come up with another way to describe it? Plus, you can't completely drain the human body of blood unaided because you die of exsanguination before you lose your total blood volume. So it's a pet peeve. Can we move past it? Anyone out there who's currently developing a vampire in movie, please take note. Uh, and then, okay, of course, back to Nick Knight. Uh, the curator is uh, still curating, hanging out in her office, snacking heavily on what might be a quesadilla. I'm not sure what she's yeah, it, <laughs> eating it at this moment. It looks weird. It's yeah. pizza or a quesadilla. It's really hard to tell. She's got bags of chips open, but this is like soft and bread-like. Yeah, it's um, semicircle shaped. Yeah, so we get some more mouth breather POV cam. Ooh, maybe, maybe it's a Taco Bell chalupa. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's reminiscent of the <laughs> that era... <laughs> Taco this is Bell the pivotal problem this moment that needs to be mulled over. 
what is this woman eating? I don't know. I'm going quesadilla. Um, uh, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, so she is doing the 1989 version of Enhance on this picture that she found of Nick. Oh, yeah. On, on the photocopier. Yes. The so she's machine. zooming in steadily. She photocopies it once from the book. And, and it just keeps getting higher and higher resolution. Yes. As she photocopies her photocopy over and over again. And then the mouth breather in this scene is revealed to be Nick himself as he appears behind her. Totally wet oh, because he just last, got out of the pool. The last picture that she enhanced off of it was obviously Nick Knight from the 1800s uh, and shirt ripped with a very noticeable scar on his chest. Yes. And as soon as she recognizes him, in this picture, he pops up behind her. So she's freaked out already. Plus, he's all wet. Uh, no one knows how the bad guy got in. And now he's standing there. And he does a little bit of aggressive stalking in this moment. Like, she's clearly trying to get away from him. She doesn't want him close to her. And he's following her around. It it really comes off uh, well as him. He's He was heavily injured catching this guy with the automatic weapon and he vamped out, uh, caught the guy, like incapacitated the guy and then disappeared. And then he's all like jazzed up and he finds her and he's obviously having a lot of trouble controlling himself. His, it comes off as predatory. Urges. Yes. Yes. It comes off as a very predatory moment here. Uh, not malicious. And he's not like trying to be a bad guy. He's just, he has these strong urges. He's trying to control them. The you know, modern vampire conundrum. And uh, yeah, so it, it's not, it's not like him trying to take advantage of her or anything. It's yeah, but he does back her up to a desk eventually. And they, they share a moment. Um, where they swap a couple of quotes. Pass is the only dead thing that smells sweet. Edward Thomas. And then he spends a little bit of time uh, career shaming her. Um, she's clearly an independent woman who has dedicated her life to her career. She's passionate about it. So, hey, why not criticize her for being married to her job? Because she should definitely be off having babies not being mired down in the past. Uh, he starts getting a little handsy at this point, too. So he's not only career shaming her, but he's also quite close to her. He takes the glasses off from around her neck. Uh, and she's pretty yeah, much out of The chemistry doesn't really now. work very well for me because then she embraces him and kisses him. Yeah, so we go from... It seems pretty forced. Yeah, I don't want you within six feet of me to, oh, it's nice when you hold me. Um, I mean, he's pretty much been, like, love-bombing her since he got in here because he's been flirting pretty heavy and stalking her. And so she's just sort of trapped in this moment. Um, but then they do this cool swing-around-them shot as they chat. And uh, on one rotation when we come around, we're back to angry vampire hamster as he has once again vamped out and almost bites her before the guard appears and he swooshes out of there uh so back at the station the coroner is looking for nick uh 
The marquee. It's like half of this movie. Everybody's <laughs> Everyone's looking like, for Nick. Where is Nick should have been the title of this movie. Uh, and the marquee on his movie theater that he lives in is uh, It's a Wonderful Life. That was worth, worthy of note. Um, he's moping around in his house, which is where the coroner founds him. And he has this iconic line. It's the blood that keeps you from coming over. I am what I am. And I don't think Betty Ford takes vampires. Uh, which we are going to recycle for the TV show. Uh, <laughs> I did not know what this meant when I watched this when I was much younger. But uh, Betty Ford, of course, is a famous rehab facility. So what he's saying is, this is an addiction. And no one can help me with it, because how do you explain to anybody that you're addicted to blood? Uh, and while the coroner is there, listening to Nick be all mad at himself, uh, Elise calls. And immediately, he bro-senses that there's a story here that uh, Nick is not sharing. So this is the second time that Nick refers to just all woman. <laughs> That he needs a woman. And wouldn't it be lovely to have a woman? So I'm sensing that this is less about a journey towards mortality. And more like this man just really needs to get laid. Which, he's Rick Springfield. I'm pretty sure he could probably sort this out on his own. But maybe there's some vampire thing happening here that is preventing him from getting his a uh, woman. And there's actually a real nuanced bit of acting here from Rick Springfield when he kind of break down, breaks down and we have kind of a tear-filled moment um, where we realize all of this grumpiness is really just self-hatred. You have no idea what it's like to live all these years. And what's those you love grow old and die one by one. And never have a real relationship with a woman. And we get our first reference to Lacroix. Uh, Lacroix being Nick's master, or the one that made his him sire. what he is. Yes, his sire. And meanwhile, while we're having this heartfelt conversation about Lacroix and how Lacroix won't leave him alone and how he wants him to be his vampire son so they can travel the world murdering together, his friend, the coroner, has made himself this microwave biscuit. And he is in love with this microwave biscuit. He's moaning. He's chomping. He is just deeply committed to this microwave biscuit in the way that Rick Springfield's character wants to be deeply committed to whatever woman he wakes up next to. It's really hard to listen to. And it's one of the moments in the movie that I remember every time it's coming up because it's so uncomfortable to listen to this man eating this biscuit. And then we cut back to the Elise. <laughs> Thank you for that. Then we cut back to Elise, who is also eating, because she's always eating. Uh, I don't remember what she's eating in this moment. I think it's chips. What matters is, at what point is she going to run out of food? Is Are people bringing her food? Is she leaving and coming back with food? Questions for the ages. DoorDash. Yeah, so she's reading this book, and it's casually chatting about some kind of curse at the previous dig site, which we did reference earlier in the movie. He says, weren't you afraid of the curse? And she goes, oh, I you knew know about, about that? that? Yes, this is when he was waving around his 
Giant historical knowledge. Yes. <laughs> uh, I don't know what scientific text she's reading that is just casually chatting about the fact that vampires were haunting the dig site. Uh, I don't know. It's it's a lot less dry than I imagined an archaeological record book It's an be. anthropological, mythological summary. Yes. Uh, we cut to the next day, and Topper's dead body is discovered, because during all of this, Topper and Jeannie have been attacked. Remember, remember there's homeless people being killed? I mean... By the, the stalker with the jangle keys. Yeah, we get a lot of, look over here, uh, with the Nick Knight stuff. But we, and Skanky, cannot fail to remember that there is actually a murderer going around killing people. Uh, Skanky, who is the quiet hero of this show, uh, is actually putting the pieces together instead of just acting like a victim. So he recognized the connection of the blood drive. Um, he's also the one who earlier surmised that there may actually be two different killers since the M.O. was different, which Nick dismissed offhandedly. A but copycat killer? As we soon ridiculous. learn, Skanky's right about everything throughout the entire movie. Uh, and then we go to The Raven, which I'm not sure if we name it. No, I didn't see a name for it. Okay, well, in the television show, this is going to be The Raven. It's a club that Nick goes to. It's a whole vibe. It's a whole vibe. It's neon. It's smoky. There's a lot of slicked hair. There's a lot of hats. Were there a lot of hats? A lot of people, men and women, wearing fedoras. <laughs> it's it's definitely going for a modern vibe, like the the ultra modern aesthetic of. 1989 yes the 1989 like the half future. formal attire yes. and hats yeah and yes nobody talking uh and, and it's lots smoky because this whole movie is smoky it is hella smoky in here so smoky we almost can't make out the woman that he's chatting with uh, but rick springfield does make his way in he has to sort of bully his way past the line but he he skips the line and walks in um, and I just have to take a moment to mention that Rick Springfield's pants are quite tight in this moment. And I amend my earlier statement about who the hero is in this movie. It's Rick Springfield's ass because they look very nice in this tight pair of jeans and his little members only leather jacket that he's sporting. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to make a mention of that. So uh, the woman playing Jeanette, which I don't think we name her in this she's uh, credited does, as Jeanette. he does use a name okay well she's Jeanette. but i don't remember what it was um she's credited as Jeanette on the imdb page um she's Jeanette in the television show so we're just gonna go with Jeanette. she reveals that his real name is actually jean-pierre Jean <laughs> uh and he she does give him a Jeanette. uh she does give him an address after a fair amount of loaded banter um, which they have zero chemistry so this bouncing back and forth about a lost love or lost sexual escapades uh, doesn't work. Yeah, and Nick just asks, where is he? Yeah, and she writes it down on a piece of paper and just tells him he's going to be sorry that he goes to look for for LaCroix. Which this is obviously LaCroix. For him. Heading off to towards here for now. Um, and so he turns around and, oh, look, Elise has followed him. So at least But it turns out that this isn't just a normal hyper modern aesthetic bar. It's a vampire 
hypermodern aesthetic bar. Yes, as Elise is immediately surrounded because she probably smells like fast food because she's just been eating straight grease and ice cream for the last 45 minutes of this movie. And so I'm sure she smells amazing. So To a vampire. To a vampire. Uh, so she has followed him, and he whisks her out and away from uh, all the people who she notes are, quote, staring at her neck. Uh, and they hop in the car, and she names... He tries to kick her out of the car yes, but three or four she, times. Yes, but she won't leave, so... She says something about vampires. He gets fed up and uh, they just speed away. And then she whips the book out and throws it up on the dashboard. Even though she had not been carrying anything in the clothes. <laughs> uh, I don't know where she had this book. It must have been in her fabulous uh, A-line skirt, which she is currently wearing right now. Uh, so she throws it up on the dashboard and points out the picture of him, which she still has in there. It's a photocopied copy of the copy of the copy that she blew up. That looks like a portrait shot. Which conveniently a moment before a vampire had grabbed Nick's shirt. It pulled it down and revealed oh, uh, the... This is actually later. No, when they're in the club, a oh, vampire right. grabs his shirt and yes, pulls it down right. and we get a reveal of, of his scar. So she knows for sure that it's him. But he spends approximately 20 seconds gaslighting her, and she's like, you're right, I'm crazy. I'm sorry I ever said anything. Uh, so he just lets her blame herself uh, for all of it, including him ghosting her last night. And so she finally apologizes for talking too much. And he goes, it's okay, the chemistry just went a little, and makes a hand gesture. Uh, so while he is just conducting this travesty of a conversation with Elise. We hear a radio prog program begin to play on the radio. This next set is dedicated to you, Jean-Pierre. The Nightcrawler's waiting for you. I know you're out there. Um, he very responsibly leaves Elise in his car while he goes to track down Lacroix and tells her to stay in the car, which I think she's out of the car before he's even out of sight to follow him. Uh, he follows Lacroix through this building this radio station building and out the side door uh, while Elise trails behind. And oh, look, there's a convenient meatpacking plant and slaughterhouse behind the radio station. Of course. I mean, like a full one. There's cows and shit, like live cows and also dead cows hanging over vats, like open tanks of blood. <sighs> so LaCroix pulls out bum bum, the cup. Hey, did we forget the cup? The jade. Goblet. Guys, remember the cup? <laughs> oh, and there was a reference uh, Nick made previously about a ritual. Maybe it was with the coroner. Yes, he's talking with yes. the coroner about how you can pour blood if you from had one cup two, to the other cup. If you had both jade goblets, there's a ritual you can perform to turn a vampire into a human. And that's why Nick wants the second goblet. Yeah, and also why Lacroix is keeping it from him. So he pulls out the cup because, spoiler alert, LaCroix is the one who killed the guard. The mouth the breather. Yeah, he is the OG mouth breather. Uh, and Elise is in the meatpacking plant listening to them chat because she may actually wish to die. Uh, so LaCroix and Nick's verbally spar for a little bit uh, before LaCroix pulls monster face and uh, they spar. Not verbally, but physically <laughs> spar. Uh, mostly it's Nick getting beat up. Until they both see Elise, and uh, she gets to be the pawn in uh, LaCroix's uh, two-boat question. 
who do you save, the cup or the girl? Which, since Lacroix isn't actually threatening the girl, he's just holding the cup out. Well, he's up in the rafters close to her in one of the catwalks. And so he's close enough yeah, I, to could... be threatening. Yeah, I guess and he's he says, saying... how badly do you want to be immortal? Yeah. Which one will you save? <laughs> the girl or the cup? <laughs> yeah, so I guess you can assume if he tried to catch the goblet, maybe Lacroix would have killed Elise. But then he just dropped the goblet without giving Nick even... The hope of a chance of catching <laughs> it like, before it hits the ground. Bottle fingers, and he just drops the cup. It shatters. If only there was a trained archaeologist skilled at restoration hanging around somewhere. Oh, wait. That would probably be both Nick Maybe and Maybe even Elise. the curator of a museum right. who has a whole, whole teams of people that could <laughs> restore this artifact. Because <laughs> at this point, Lacroix and Nick fight, and Lacroix gets thrown onto a wall of spikes. So Nick had time to retrieve the parts of this cup, but he just runs out and somehow it's now day. So Nick runs out and hops into the trunk of his car. It was just about dawn when they got to the radio station. Nick and Elise. Was that established somehow? Or are you just hoping? I'm using my feelings. Okay, I think you're ascribing sense here where there was no sense. It's day. It's full ass day. It's not just dawn. It's like noon, bright. Right. They were sun's up. It was dark when they went into the radio station. It and was it's like a five minute walk to the meatpacking plant. <laughs> they fought inside for about ten minutes and now it's like noon. It's like full day. Full day. Uh Nick runs out, gets in the trunk of his car, which luckily he has a car that has the most trunk space of any car made in the last thirty years. Uh, and then Lacroix has a little happy, laughy sigh moment, which is like vaguely uncomfortable to witness. Uh, and then we go to Skanky, who is chatting at the impound lot because they found Nick's car. It was parked illegally, uh, illegally and has been towed. And so Skanky's gone to retrieve it and with the permission of the captain is going to be able to drive it around all day. Joyriding. So here Skanky uses the phrase between me, you and the lamppost which is another one we're going to recycle quite a bit uh, for the television show. So it's worth noting. Uh, Key's guy, uh, remember him? He's walking through the hospital, and everyone's just smiling and recognizing him as if he's supposed to be there. And we POV camera pans back, and oh, snap. It's the blood drive guy who was taking Skanky's blood earlier in the movie. This is actually our first POV walk in a bit. Uh, we took a bit of a break there. Yeah, uh, because Lacroix has been exposed. Uh, we've, we've been introduced to Lacroix. Yeah, so we don't need to keep leaving that in doubt. Yeah. Uh, so N- Rick Springfield hops out of the trunk of the car because Skanky has gone to the hospital and parked in the parking deck. So it's free to come out. There's no sun. He changes out of his bloodstained shirt and an old woman walking by gets a uh, an eyeful an eyeful of Rick Springfield chest. Uh, and by the time they get off the elevator, because of course he gets on the elevator with her, she's trying to set him up with somebody, uh, which I always thought was a really cute moment. Because otherwise, this show, this movie is a little serious. 
Yeah. So the, the funny moments like that are, are always nice. Uh, so Nick sneaks into the blood bank records and does a little snooping while poor Skinky, who is the only actual responsible cop in this show, <laughs> is stalled at the desk, attempting to get back there. Uh, so he does confirm that Skinky's lead about the blood drive guy was correct. By breaking into the doctor's office, using his computer illegally, right. printing out a list of donor records that are confidential medical records and then leaving the office and then presumably using that illegally obtained list of donor records as evidence against Fenner. Yes. And so yeah. meanwhile, Skanky walks by, sees that the door is unlocked, opens it, sticks his head in and then goes, now I'll wait for a warrant because Skanky is the only real cop in this entire movie. <laughs> uh, we do get a moment where we see Fenner, the blood drive guy, rummaging around in the Cadillac uh, after he spotted Skanky's keys, which he he noticed was, were Cadillac keys. Uh, so Skanky goes joyriding in the Cadillac after we see an ominous puddle of fluid under the car as he's driving away. Uh, and as he's running down a hill he realizes he has no brakes. So, oh, snap. So all of a sudden, he is in a rampaging Cadillac, which probably weighs more than all of the cars on the road in front of it, and he has to figure out a way to stop himself. But not only that, Rick Springfield is in the trunk, uh, getting banged around. He does eventually get stopped, but it's only after hitting another car and a fire hydrant. Uh, meanwhile, Elise is looking for him and she's called two people and pretty much given up the search because it's 1989 and he doesn't have a cell phone. That's about the best she can do, but she does remember. Until she remembers. Yes. That the, the yellow pages. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she looks him up in the yellow pages because there was a time where people just printed that shit in a book. And gave it to everybody. your name, phone number, and home address. Just. just published in a book that was mailed to every household, and like you could just grab a free one at the grocery store. Yeah. So she looks him up and remembers that she knows his alarm code because from he, the Mayan artifact. From the artifact. Uh, so she writes that down, uh, and then we get to Skanky at a body shop with the Cadillac. Oh man, oh man, oh man, he's gonna kill me. He's gonna kill me. Worse still, he's gonna make me pay for it. Skanky. I'm dead. Uh, Nick does pop out of the trunk, uh, which is part of that quote that we just heard. And he uh, immediately notices that the brake lines were cut. Absolving Skanky of some amount of guilt. Uh, Nick even apologizes about not believing Nick or about not believing Skanky about the case, uh, which surprises Skanky and is a nice kind of a nice moment between the two of them. Uh, Nick is looking pretty peaked because at this point he's just been on the run at random for several days and has not had anything to eat. In fact, we haven't seen him eat anything since he used the cup in the microwave. Elise, who is determined to die a horrible death, uh, sneaks into his apartment and finds the cup just chilling on top of the microwave, uh, which she doesn't know 
that he got a second cup, that he had found a cup in the first dig. So it's a big leap of faith that at this moment she doesn't assume that he killed the guard. Because we have in no way established. Oh, no, no, no. She was there in the meatpacking plant. When the other cup got broken. And LaCroix revealed that he, in fact, had killed the security guard and stolen the goblet. Did he say that outright when they were in the meatpacking They were talking about killing the guard. And LaCroix says, oh, yes, the security guard, yes, but the others, no. Small amount of faith in Elise restored. Very small amount. Uh, So the elevator comes up. She runs over expecting it to be Rick Rick Springfield. And in fact, it's Jeannie of Jeannie and Topper looking the worst for wear. The charming homeless couple. Yes. And Nick reveals that he knew someone or he heard someone walking, jangling their keys. And that that is the person that they're looking for. Yeah, they're at the hospital talking to the receptionist lady yes and without really having to clarify that he gets the answer that this is fenner because fenner does carry keys and is known to jangle them and that fenner's mother got in a car accident and contracted hepatitis from the blood they used blood transfusion yes from the blood transfusion and that she then passed from this hepatitis hepatitis, and that fenner blamed himself because this blood made it through without being tested properly and it was his fault. Yes. And now he should that, have caught it. Now that we have had the final big reveal, uh, Fenner is heading swiftly towards the climax at the apartment. And he appears because Elise has called for uh, an ambulance. And Fenner appears instead, finding out that Jeannie, who he thought was dead and who can identify him, is there and needs to be dispatched with. We do get a cool shadow moment here, which Matt referenced earlier of Fenner walking down the hallway with his hand out in front of him holding the keys. And we get to see his hand holding the keys in shadow as he walks. So this is a nice nod. Homage to Nosferatu. Homage to the horror trope of uh, established in Nosferatu. Um, Clearly this man has a serious problem with his keys because he is jangling the shit out of these. I mean, he's, he's going for it. He either has no pockets or no chill, one or the other. Maybe maybe he just has a musical impulse. It's possible. Meanwhile, Nick calls in to check his messages remotely. That was a thing you could do. <laughs> you could you, call. You could your press own the star machine. key. Yes. When you were called, when your answering machine was listening, you had about a five second gap. You could press a button, and then it might even ask you for like a pin code, and then. You had tone dial instructions, play message, delete message, whatever. Yes. So we even get the tape rewinding sound effect as his tape recorder in his answering machine rewinds so he can listen to his messages. And um, Elise in the apartment at the time. Yes. She notes that he has it, called it. So she just picks up the phone because, of course, Nick is actually on the phone. He's just talking to his answering machine. Um, and... She picks up the phone to talk to him and notices right away when Fenner comes in because she puts the phone down as the EMTs arrive. Doesn't she hang it up. Just doesn't sets hang it, down. it up, just sets it down. So she goes over there and notices right away that um, shit's fishy because Fenner has no bag. He has nobody with him. And so he just clocks her. Um, he shoves her into the paint table, kisses her, the, kicks her the into a canvas. The conveniently 
cluttered table full of open containers of volatile Paint. yes and volatile substances. chemicals so nick hearing the kerfuffle over at the his phone. apartment uh tells skanky that he's going to meet him at his apartment and then runs off and skanky goes uh how are you going to get there <laughs> so he literally runs out the window and jumps off the balcony to fly to his apartment and flies well, we've been looking all over. Where the hell is night? Listen, all he said was meet him at his place, then he flew out of here. So meanwhile, it's a convention at Nick's apartment. There's like five people here. Fenner's there. I guess there's three. Fenner's there. Jeannie's there. Elise is there. And now shit's on fire because Jeannie attempted to fend off Fenner with a burning, burning broom and caught some of the paint chemicals on fire. And Nick falls through the ceiling. The skylight. The, the convenient skylight. skylight. Was the That's skylight, skylight. lightproof? Maybe it was on the mechanical switch. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, this. Let's hope it's lightproof because he wanders about this. He's supposed he. We've established he's allergic to sunlight. He's got a lot of windows for a guy who's allergic to sunlight. But he falls through the ceiling, and he tosses Fenner into the wall. People get tossed a lot. Um, it's a default move, I think. It's a default vampire move. Just grab people and throw them against the wall. So Fenner gets tossed. Um, Fenner is... gets tossed into the wall. Yes. It's a Fenner Benner. Fenner Benner. <laughs> Jeannie is miraculously better and flees to the elevator. And uh-oh, we hear some familiar mouth breathing. Well, as Nick is going to get Alice, he hears something Elise. behind him. Elise <laughs> uh, and lie. turns around and LaCroix has picked up Fenner and <laughs> yes, drunk him like a Capri Sun, son. <laughs> That's what he did. Uh, so LaCroix does a little murdering, a little lecturing, a little pontificating in this moment. And very uh, LaCroix, very LaCroix. And uh, Nick and Elise are trapped on the other side of the fire. And Elise noticing that, Nick is a little, little weak, decides that the best possible course of action is to offer herself to him in order to save everyone from the bad guy. Where have I seen that before? The woman offering herself. <laughs> the woman pure of heart <laughs> offering herself to the vampire. I mean, nobody who eats that many snacks is pure of heart. But yes, Elise is offering herself in an attempt to give Nick the strength he needs to defeat the bad guy. Uh, so there's a little more tossy-tossy, fighty-fighty as they sort of vamp fight it out. Uh, LaCroix flutters around, uh, float like a butterfly, bite like a vampire, I guess, as he's taunting him from uh, an elevated position. He even drains Elise uh, after Nick gets tossed around a bit. And Nick and finally that really gets, gets Nick angry. Yeah, he finally gets his shit together after he sees Elise getting murdered. And he goes all monster face so he can stab his master with in the tummy, not in the chest, because aiming is hard. But the stake is on fire. So when he pushes him into the wall, we get an awe-inspiring mm -hmm. special effect. Throws. He throws. LaCroix. Yeah, he javelins Across him. the room. He javelins him into the wall. And we get this awe Against a spike. Yes. Or no, actually, I think just pins him to the wall. It pins him to the, the wall. With the wood stick. Yeah, so he can melt like wax. Literally. Literally 
There's Literally. like a, a flame transition covering the screen. And when the flame dies down, LaCroix, the actor, has been replaced by LaCroix, the wax model. <laughs> which is, which melts. <laughs> uh, and then we get a, a, a zoom A little in. bit less dramatically than uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, because it doesn't move. It's just sitting still <laughs> as it melts. I mean, it doesn't like expose like skull. Oh, no, no, no. Like we that. don't go that deep. But we do get some bad fang makeup again here as we go and see Elise has been bitten. And apparently he bit her from just the weirdest angle possible. Because, again, no one ever puts those holes in a place that makes sense. Right. And if they're at the right angle, they're like five inches apart. I, I, someday. I'm going to see one, that, and it's going to be perfect, and I'm going to weep. I'm just going to weep Interview and Interview with vampires, pretty on point. That we haven't seen any. I mean, okay, so when you do the two holes, they get it wrong Eight, 95% of the time. There, there was one where, anyway, that's a different show, but yeah. they, they did have the fangs right. Well, I've, I've then seen you once. better find it and show it to me because I, I will I will withhold my belief until I see that for myself. Uh, so bad bang makeup strikes again, but uh, so and then we get a the cup back at the museum, but the plaque says in memory of Elise Hunter. So we can assume Elise has passed. Uh, but Nick's willing to make the best of it. His Cadillac is back. Skanky's got it all fixed. And we get some setup here because this was intended to be a pilot for a television show. Uh, and we get an illusion that Skanky is going to be his partner from here on out. And Skanky gets the really the funnest line of Skanky, which is Michelangelo works in marble, but Rudy works in Bondo. Rudy, his third cousin. Rudy, his third cousin, who fixed this Cadillac. Uh, so that's it. I mean, that's the end of the movie. We don't know what happened to Elise. We don't really get any other plot resolution um, because we were intending this to be a television show. So this movie was a made-for-TV movie and was always intended to be picked up as a TV series. And it would, eventually. Uh, but not with Rick Springfield, Rick Springfield or literally any of the actors. Except, except for Skanky. John Capellos, who plays Skanky, who does reprise his role as Skanky later three years later when it gets picked up as a television show and gets moved from los angeles to toronto so this was the first time you had watched this movie all the way through you've been trying to get me to watch this movie for literally decades <laughs> so what what's your impression where, where do you thoughts feelings it. emotions it wasn't uh I was so I've seen a few episodes of the TV show and I was expecting the movie to be as campy as the TV show. I resemble that remark. Uh, but no, it wasn't. It was and there was it was much more serious uh, in you know Nick's dramatic struggle against the hunger <laughs> or would, would it be the thirst. Uh, oh, however you want to slice it. And and there was chemistry between him and the love interest, which I can't say for the TV show. Um, 
Although in the TV show, uh, Nick and Jeanette have good chemistry. And uh, Nick and Skanky. Yes. Nick yes. and that, yes. that yes, incarnation that of Nick and Skanky have a much better chemistry. Work. They yes. work. Yeah. And Skanky's character is a little more goofy. Yes, he's definitely a different skanky yeah. when we get picked up again. He's not trying so hard. Yeah, the hair is gone. He's he's a little fluffier about the midsection. And he's definitely more like a seasoned but still goofy detective. Right. He's, he's using humor effectively to diffuse the psychological trauma yes. of working homicides. Yes. Whereas in the movie... He's way more high strung. He's like so close to having some kind of psychotic break that he's going to have to like take a year leave from the force <laughs> and do some serious counseling and painting and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, he can always paint with Nick uh, once he gets his paint table back together. Mm -hmm. Well, so do you have a rewatch score for this? It'd be pretty low. And, it wasn't a deep story. I don't think there would be much more that I would get from it by rewatching it. Um, so it wouldn't be like unpleasant to watch it again. It would just be boring. Right. So maybe it, a it's a three. cleaning movie. You put it on in the background when you're doing something else. Uh, it's good. I mean, I, I always enjoy this movie. I do enjoy this movie slightly more. Than the first two episodes of the television show, which are a complete reprise of this movie. Um, just because I enjoy the filming a lot more. We get the cool point of view camera. Uh, we also get some interesting angled shots. Whereas I think the filming for the television show is a little more vanilla. Um, uh, there's not as much mouth breathing in the television show, which is a loss. Again, it's really just up to your own perspective on that one. <laughs> We also lose the flapping sound, uh, but we do keep the sort of ultralight. The ultralight floating over the city. Floaty feel for the flying scenes. Yeah, and you never actually see a vampire flying. Yes. Uh, oh, yes, you do. Oh, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh. In the TV show? Oh, you do. <laughs> oh, and it's so good. Okay, so... What I thought was interesting in this is literally every character has an eating scene. Yes. Yes, yes. we were talking so about So Elise is eating uh, pretty much the entire movie. Um, if she's not talking, she's eating generally snacks. Uh, and the coroner fellow, Jack, he gets to eat. He like makes love to his microwave sausage biscuit. Uh, so I think this is to provide a contrast or to give us a con a context for the fact that how Nick, much Nick is not eating, how much Nick is not eating. Yeah. And also for the second, like the two thirds and end of the movie, he doesn't have uh, any blood. So we only see him drinking blood right at the beginning. Right. We see him drinking it from the cup. And then we see him sort of angrily holding a bottle, but we aren't shown him drinking it again. Right. And so by the time he resists Elise's offer at the very end, it's been a while. 
And I think it's to, so, and then everyone's been eating all the way through this. It's to sort of highlight Except Skanky. Hungry. I don't think Skanky was Skanky eating. eats that glove of garlic. That's the only thing we see Skanky eating. Well, we don't see him very much. I mean, he's yeah. driving, he's smoking, and he talks about addiction. So right. he doesn't necessarily eat, but he provides right. his, the, his parallel of Nick's struggle is cigarettes. He provides the addiction dialogue. The, you just don't know what it's like to have an addiction. You don't know what it's like to be addicted to something and having a cigarette. So he provides the addiction context. Everyone else is providing the hunger context. So we're sort of encapsulating Nick in this exterior experience that's giving us a window onto what he might be feeling interior-wise, which may be ascribing way more depth to Rick Springfield. Uh, yeah, I really feel <laughs> like we're really... stretching it with this adaptation. of the Look, you got to find depth and meaning where you can find it, okay, and... If you can find it in Rick Springfield, you can find it anywhere. I mean, this was his acting bit, okay? <laughs> and he has moments. He has moments in this. There's moments where you're like, okay, it's Rick Springfield. Um, he's doing his best. <laughs> Yay, Rick. And then there's moments where you're like, okay, okay. Like the scene in the apartment when he finally breaks down and he goes from being angry to sad and he really has this kind of lost expression. And you believe it. Like, that's a moment. It's a moment that, you know, there's there's reasons why this movie is okay. It's still good. I've rewatched it plenty of times. I had it on DVD um, back when I had my huge collection of DVDs. I bought it at Media Play, of all places. <laughs> um, and I, I really enjoyed it. I had watched the entire television show first. So it was like finding additional content oh, okay. Um, for me. So I, I didn't watch it and then watch the rest of the series. It was kind of the other way around. But I thought, yeah, it's a cleaning movie. You put it on in the background. You pay attention to those fun little quotes that you're expecting to come up. And it's just fun. It's like a candy bar. It doesn't provide a lot of nutritive value. But every once in a while, you just want something that's quick, enjoyable, and doesn't require any kind of commitment. I guess we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Unless you have any further remarks about uh, Jean-Pierre. Um, I th the Lacroix character was more captivating, uh, engaging than I was expecting. Uh, the the guy that played Lacroix pulled off the... So having seen a, a dusting of the uh, available... Nick Knight TV show episodes. LaCroix there is amazing. But he's a very, very, very different LaCroix than <laughs> in this movie. And the way that Nick's character was playing out in this movie, I thought, oh, the, like, that LaCroix character from the TV show would not work. But this guy pulled off a serious, like, I'm taking myself incredibly too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> he pulled it off really well. I, I thought it, it was a good match for Rick Springfield's more serious Nick Knight. Yeah. That's interesting. I'd, I'd never have liked this portrayal of LaCroix. 
So, but I think that's because I know where we're going with La Croix. Right. I know what we're about you to You have get. a firm idea of what La Croix is. Right. And I have a very thin, small idea. Yes. I will say season one, which you have not seen a ton of season one. Season one right. is... Right. I see whatever you like watching the most. Right. So season one is very much this vibe. Skanky's a little bit more like this skanky. Uh, the oh, detective night you, character. You told me every season of Forever Night was produced by a different television studio. Yes, so we really get three takes three on visions. the initial st- three visions of the initial storyline. And season 1 is much more in keeping with the original storyline. Which is I mean it it's not my favorite, which is why you haven't seen it a ton. It's not bad. It's just not my favorite season. But we're going to go through each and every episode. Started. As part of this podcast. As part of this podcast. I am so excited. I can't tell you how long I have been trying to get Matt to watch my favorite television show of all time. And he's he's excited. I can tell. He's got a twinkle in his eye. He's uh he's smirking a little bit. He's he's excited to see the uh more of this lies. <laughs> more of these characters. I could just tell. He's he's ready for the Nightcrawler's uh, radio program. Uh, I've I've braced myself. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't love it by the end, the Nightcrawler radio show part of Lacroix's story, I really like. Yeah. Oh, that's what I'm talking about. We're gonna like first season Lacroix is not peak Lacroix, but second and third season Lacroix is is peak Lacroix, and he, he's the reason I. I love the show. I mean, Nick is fine. He's fine. Right. And Nick is fine, but LaCroix, you know, shines the light on on that whole, on Nick's whole perspective on the world. Right. He he calls Nick out on his bullshit continuously, which is why I love him as a character. Because if you just had Nick, and you just had Nick's sort of idealist, I'm going to find a way to redeem myself vampire character, it, it gets old real fast but that you you've got to have your foil and lacroix is a perfect foil because he's completely fine being a vampire he totally accepts everything that comes with it and he's really not sure why nick can't just fucking get over it and enjoy the fact that he's immortal and he can do whatever he wants because lacroix has been enjoying that fact for thousands of years at this point uh so i'm excited i'm super excited to share share something i love with the person I love. I'm excited. <laughs> See? See? And you said it was lies. It's not lies. All right, so we you, do... were, you were hyping it up. <laughs> I dive. I'm the hype woman. I'm okay. your hype woman. It's my job. Anyway, continue. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we do have like a little bit of business that we have to take care of. And it is a important piece of business, which is that we have a Patreon. One. Patreon. The first Patreon. Uh, we really should have called out this Patreon at the very beginning because I feel like they have earned the uh, the top spot getting called out at the very beginning. Uh, but that Patreon is none other than uh, Matt. Matt is the first Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the first patron of of our Patreon account. And he didn't even join a high tier. He just joined the lowest tier. <laughs> Which, as a show of support, like I'll take it. Rachel made it. And... With a whole separate email account and everything. And 
I knew she was she had she was setting everything up on her phone, and I thought I'll I'll give her a little nice pleasant surprise, <laughs> and so my birthday present. So I went here. and I subscribed to the Patreon for this podcast, the- and I I saw when she got the notification. <laughs> yeah, the 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 very first hench human is uh yes. is Matt. Oh, but we have been remiss. We did not award anything to this movie. Oh, yes, yes. Yes. So Okay, so what is your award for this movie? So my award for this movie is the award for keeping your eye on the prize despite all the bullshit around you. And that's skanky. Because Nick loosely investigates what's going on. He pretty much just assumes LaCroix did everything and just operates off of that. He's really never looking for the guy who killed the homeless people. He's just working out some vampire drama. Uh, Vampire daddy drama is really all he's doing. Uh, The coroner is too fixated on Rick Springfield, which, fair. He's just stuck on the fact that Nick is not listening to him or doing what he wants. And so even he isn't really doing any real investigating, but skanky. Figures it out within 30 minutes of the movie and then continues to investigate despite the fact that his partner is missing for almost two days. Yeah, it's like two thirds of the movie. Everybody says, where is Nick? Where's Nick? Yeah. And despite the fact that he's played as sort of a bumbling, he's the least morally gray character. He has the opportunity to pull the, the records. He has the opportunity to walk in and look at this computer and he says he's going to wait for a warrant because he is the keeping his eye on the prize. And so that is why he is awarded this award. So what is your award? Uh, my award is for the most hungry female love interest that I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> And she goes to her office on multiple occasions with just an armful of junk food. Like, she's in an office. There's no fridge. She has a half gallon of ice cream and a giant spoon. She is very rusty. She's committed she's rusty to eating that 11. entire she's... container of ice cream because there's nowhere else for it to go if it melts. She doesn't have a freezer. <laughs> she's very Brad Pitt from Ocean's Eleven. You know that character? He's, oh, yes. he's always eating yeah, he's every always time you eating. see him. Yeah, it's like that, except with chips and Cheetos. and She fuels her research with junk food. I, I just... It was such an interesting narrative choice to include that. And I, I know we kind of ascribe it to maybe it's a counterpoint to hunger, addiction. But... I mean, really, it. I also think it might be an attempt to defeminize her because she's got some fairly feminine clothing, but we're playing her as a less than feminine character, which in 1989 means we're just creating a career woman who would rather actually work on her career than uh, quit and marry and have babies. But she does still indulge herself. She hasn't uh, removed all... Um, uh, carnal experiences from her existence. Maybe we're supposed to be setting her up as impulsive. Like the type of person who would impulse right, buy. Right, because at, at the end, 
she really does jump at the chance to offer herself to Nick to become immortal. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't even make that bargain. She's just like, look, I'd rather go out like this. I'd rather have Rick Springfield suck on my neck than get killed by this fire. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's just, it, you know, it's it bothers me every time I watch it. Not bothers me in like a negative, just but like it preoccupies my thoughts every time I watch The this. circumstances of her death? No, no, the fact that she eats the whole time. Oh, like, oh. why did we include that? It's just very strange. But... That's what we are. Strange. And beautiful. And beautiful. So on that note, we will wrap up Nick Knight. Uh, We will mourn the fact that Shadow of the Vampire is lost in some kind of legal loophole and isn't streaming anywhere. Uh, But remember, if we get enough Patreons, which you can visit the Patreon page at Strange and Beautiful Book Club or follow us on Instagram at Strange and Beautiful Book Club, where I update pretty frequently about what we're doing, which is building websites, getting P.O. boxes, setting up submission forms, creating a Discord channel just for Patreons. So feel free to follow us on both. You can follow me on either one for free. But if we can get 25 Patreons, we've already got one. We only need 24. (laughs) I will buy a copy of Shadow of the Vampire. And we will review it. So, in the meantime... Remember that sometimes the strangest things are the most beautiful, too. So be who you are, and love what you love. Until next time, friends. Bye! Bye! You are listening to a Strange and Beautiful Network podcast, a network of shows focusing on unscripted discussions that promote positive but honest engagement with all the weird and wonderful topics that make our hearts happy. I want to take a moment to express my heartfelt gratitude to all our listeners. Your continuous support and engagement mean the world to us. So if you're enjoying the show, make sure to spread the love, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Strange and Beautiful Network to stay updated on the latest episodes, behind-the-scenes peaks, and exclusive content from all our shows. You can also find additional ways to support this show on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash strangeandbeautifulnetwork. By becoming a patron, you'll gain access to bonus episodes, early releases, our Discord channel, and other exciting perks. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.